Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. I have a family history of migraine. Um, I remember my grandmother talking about what she called her sick headaches. Uh, And I know a lot of people outside of my family who have migraine as well. And some of them started dealing with migraine attacks really quite recently. So I've been thinking about doing an episode on the history of migraine for a while because of all these different personal connections. And then after our recent episode on the Nelson Pill hearings, we got a lot of email from listeners who mentioned their experiences with migraine. So that moves this topic up to the top. Uh, As one note, This isn't and can't possibly be comprehensive. (laughs) There is just a wealth of historical writing about migraine. But I also didn't expand this into a two-part episode because at least in terms of what's available in English, uh, a lot of that writing is really similar. Uh, I had a whole lot more quotes from historical sources and I felt like I was reading the same thing over and over again, so I pared it down a bit. (laughs) (laughs) And migraine is really prevalent. According to the World Health Organization, it is one of the three most prevalent conditions in the world, along with anemia and hearing loss. But in spite of that prevalence, migraine is widely misunderstood, really at every level. One reason is that the vast majority of people in the world have headaches at some point. So it's easy for people who have headaches but not migraine to think of a migraine attack as just a headache. I know in my family, too, it was also like, if it's a bad headache, they would just call it a migraine. And that's not accurate. True. Yes. Yes. Uh, A lot of the historical writing about migraine really does focus on the head pain, though. The word migraine even comes from this. In English, it was originally megrim, which could also mean vertigo or dizziness, especially if that was accompanying a headache. Megrim was first used in writing in 1440, and it's been spelled so many different ways. Like when I looked in the Oxford English Dictionary and it had the other versions, and it's like click to open for more, and it was like eight lines of different spellings of this. The first use in writing was M-Y-G-R-E-Y-M-E. And there's just a whole assortment of spellings that generally combine a couple of M's and a G with every vowel that exists in English. Migrim was derived from the old French word migraine, and that French term and the word for migraine in most of the Romance languages was derived from the Greek word hemicrania, meaning half of the head. That's because often, but not always, the pain associated with a migraine attack occurs on one side of the head. But head pain, which to be clear can be severe and disabling, is really just one piece of how migraine is understood today. So to level set on that, today a migraine attack is often described as a four-phase process. The first is the prodome, which can start 24 hours or more before the pain begins. And this can involve changes in a person's mood, energy level, perception, or appetite. Some people describe it as an early warning sign that an attack is incoming. The next phase is the aura, although this doesn't happen in every case. About one in five people with migraine have migraine with aura, but not necessarily with every attack. 
The aura usually involves visual disturbances like flashing lights or blind spots in a person's vision, often in an arcing, zigzagging pattern. In medical terms, these are often called scintillating scotoma. Visual representations of what people see with their aura can look a bit like the patterns used in dazzle camouflage, which we've talked about on the show before. Migraine aura can also involve strange sensations in the body, like pins and needles, or a sense of heaviness, vertigo, or a ringing in the ears. If you've ever heard the term classic migraine, that came around in the 19th century to describe migraine with aura, but it's less common in medical literature today. In those same 19th century terms, migraine without aura was common migraine. We will get more to the reasons behind that later. For people who experience aura, it typically starts somewhere between a few minutes and an hour before the migraine pain begins. The third phase is the headache itself. In most people, the headache lasts at least six hours, and in some cases, it can last for three days or even more. This headache is typically severe and throbbing, often so acutely painful that it's impossible to sleep, or it wakes a person up from sleep. And in some cases, people can also experience silent migraine, which involves the other physiological and visual disturbances associated with migraine, but not pain. Sometimes this is mistaken for transient ischemic attacks, also known as mini-strokes, particularly in older people. Noise and bright light can both worsen a migraine attack, and attacks can also be accompanied by nausea or vomiting, and some odors can make this worse. In some people, specific smells can trigger a migraine attack, and smells are just one possible trigger. Others include specific foods, alcohol, drugs, and hormone levels in the body, including hormone levels connected to the use of hormonal contraceptives. This is why some people have a migraine attack that coincides with the same phase of their menstrual cycle every month. Stress, interrupted sleep, and hunger can all trigger migraine attacks as well, and so can caffeine or caffeine withdrawal. But in some people, caffeine helps relieve the symptoms, so this is complicated. And it can vary a lot from person to person beyond what we just said here. The fourth phase of a migraine attack is known as the postdrome, which begins after the headache has ended. Although in some people this can bring on a sense of euphoria, often it's marked with muscle aches, fatigue, an inability to concentrate, or a sense of just feeling drained. Some people call this phase a migraine hangover. So as we said earlier, migraine is extremely prevalent. At least a billion people around the world have it. But that number might actually be pretty low. By some estimates, migraine goes undiagnosed as much as half the time. Symptoms can vary tremendously, and in some cases, people might not think they're severe enough or frequent enough to seek medical treatment. People may also avoid seeing a doctor for all kinds of reasons, including money, time, fear, and the stigma involved with migraines specifically, or with seeking medical treatment for pain more generally. Research in the U.S. suggests that people experience severe headaches at about the same rate, regardless of race or ethnicity. But white people in the United States are far more likely to be diagnosed with migraine than people of any other race. There is some data to suggest that this isn't about the actual prevalence of migraine, though, but is more connected to a whole set of social and economic factors involving medical bias, racism, and access to care. 
Migraine is prevalent in children, and there's not a huge difference in its prevalence based on children's sex. But that starts to really shift as people reach puberty. In adults, migraine is significantly more common among women, including transgender women if they're taking estrogen. As many as one in seven people have migraine, but as many as one in five women. For many years, this disparity in the prevalence of migraine has been largely explained by hormonal differences. But there's also research that suggests that migraine is not only more prevalent, but also worse among women, involving more severe pain and longer-lasting attacks. So it's possible that women are diagnosed more often because their generally more severe attacks make them more likely to seek treatment. Although this, again, folds into all kinds of expectations and bias related to gender. Like, there's a lot of research at this point backing up the idea that women have a harder time getting accurate diagnoses, especially for chronic diseases, and that women's reports of pain are just not taken seriously. But at the same time, at least here in the U.S., men are generally expected to shake it off or tough it out when it comes to pain. So exactly what all of these social and cultural effects have on the rate of migraine diagnosis is, again, super complicated. Yeah. It also varies across the world. If you look Mm -hmm. at a map of, of where migraine is most prevalent, it's surely complicated social and economic factors are playing into that in addition to just whether it's more prevalent among different groups. So as we said, this is just the basics of migraine. There are other ways that migraine can present and other symptoms that people can experience. There are also other types of headache and other neurological disorders that can have some overlap with migraine. But the idea that there are gender disparities related to migraine is not new, nor is this baggage that's related specifically to women's experiences with migraine. A lot of that baggage came about during the 18th and 19th centuries, and we're going to get into that. But after the break, we'll start with migraine in the ancient world and medieval Europe. Sources claim that the oldest evidence for migraine and migraine treatments dates back at least 9,000 years thanks to the existence of trepanned skulls, and that's skulls that have holes carved or chiseled or drilled through them. Archaeologists have found trepanned skulls in the Americas, Europe, Africa, Asia, and the Polynesian Islands, basically a lot of the inhabited world. And in many cases, these holes show evidence of healing, meaning that this was a surgical procedure performed on a living person who survived it. The basic assumption here is that people were performing trepanation in the ancient world in order to treat or provide relief from migraine. But this is actually pretty speculative, and it's a pretty recent idea. In 1902, Sir Thomas Lauder Brunton gave a lecture in which he theorized that trepanation had been used to treat migraine. Even though he did not have written evidence to back this up, people really glommed onto it. And within about a decade, people were taking for granted not only that he was right, but also that this link had been definitively established somehow. It really hadn't, though. The earliest surviving written accounts of trepanation are by Hippocrates and Galen, and they lived during the 4th century BCE and the 2nd century CE, respectively, Both wrote about using trepanation to treat head injuries, and Galen also wrote about using it to treat hydrocephalus. They didn't 
write about it as a migraine treatment. And that doesn't mean that Mesolithic and Neolithic peoples weren't using uh, trepanation to treat migraine. There's just no clear evidence that they were. Like other diseases and conditions we've talked about on the show before, the first written record we have of migraine is from the Ebers Papyrus. This is a collection of Egyptian medical texts that dates back to about 1550 BCE, and it is named for German Egyptologist George Ebers. He purchased it in the late 19th century and then published it as a two-volume text. The Ebers papyrus is one of several ancient Egyptian papyri that mention headaches, and it describes one particular type of headache as a, quote, disease of one half of the head. Previous podcast subject Sushruta, who lived around 800 BCE, described 11 different types of headache diseases in his work, and one of them was a headache involving one half of the head, sometimes with vertigo, nausea, and sensitivity to light. Sushruta was working in the Ayurvedic medical tradition, which involves the balancing of three doshas, known as vata, pitta, and kapha. Sushruta described migraine as involving vitiation in all three of the doshas. Three predominant figures in Ayurvedic medical history are Sushruta, Sharaka, and Vagbada. And like Sushruta, Sharaka and Vagbada both wrote about migraine. In Sharaka's view, migraine came from vitiated vada and kapha, while Vagbada described it as stemming from vitiated vada only. Around the 4th century BCE, Greek physician Hippocrates described illnesses as coming from imbalances in four humors, which were black bile, yellow bile, blood, and phlegm. This basic idea stuck around for centuries, with a big part of medical practice involving balancing the humors and drawing out corrupted humors. For the most part, people working in this tradition described migraine as being a cold, wet condition to be treated with substances and procedures that were warming and drying. A few described migraine as hot rather than cold, but the wet part was pretty consistent. In terms of migraine specifically, Hippocrates described one patient's experience this way. Quote, he seemed to see something shining before him like a light, usually in part of the right eye. At the end of a moment, a violent pain supervened in the right temple, then in all the head and neck. Vomiting, when it became possible, was able to divert the pain and render it more moderate. His recommended treatment for this included plants from the Hellbore family, which were believed to purge harmful humors from the brain. And he also recommended that old chestnut bloodletting. Yeah, that went on. We're going to be talking about bloodletting again at like 1,500 years later in this episode. Around the year 30 CE, Roman physician Celsus described a patient's experience in his book, Dere Medicina. Quote, a long weakness of the head, but neither severe nor dangerous, through the whole life. Sometimes the pain is more violent but short, yet not fatal, which is contracted either by drinking wine or crudity or cold or heat of a fire or the sun. And all these pains are sometimes accompanied with a fever and sometimes not. Sometimes they affect the whole head, at other times a part of it. Roughly 50 years later, Aratus of Cappadocia described an assortment of recurring headaches. He used the term heterocrania for ones that occurred only on one side of the head. He described this as, quote, an illness by no means mild, even though it intermits and although it appears to be slight. 
For if at any time it's set in acutely, it occasions unseemly and dreadful symptoms. Spasm and distortion of the countenance take place, the eyes either fixed intently like horns or they are rolled inwardly to this side or to that. Vertigo, deep-seated pain of the eyes as far as the meninges, irrestrainable sweat, sudden pain of the tendons as of one striking with a club, nausea, vomiting of bilious matters, collapse of the patient. But if the affection be protracted, the patient will die, or if more slight and not deadly, it becomes chronic. There is much torpor, heaviness of the head, anxiety, and ennui. For they flee the light, the darkness soothes their disease, nor can they bear readily to look upon or hear anything agreeable. Their sense of smell is vitiated, neither does anything agreeable to smell delight them, and they have also an aversion to fetid things. The patients, moreover, are weary of life and wish to die. Okay, so two things here. One is that there's been some speculation that when he talks about this being fatal, those might not have been migraine cases. It might have been something else going on because migraine does not typically cause people to die because of a migraine attack. Uh, The other is, of all the things that are uh, included in this episode, this is really the one that I, I feel like says the most about how anxiety-producing having migraine can be because it is a recurring condition. And a lot of times people just don't know, like, is today the day the migraine is going to happen? Like, there's a sense of, like, anxious waiting and a lot of people not really knowing whether their life is going to be suddenly disrupted by a migraine attack. Uh, In about the second century, Roman physician Galen coined the term hemicrania, And he called this, quote, a painful disorder affecting approximately one half of the head, either the right or left side, and which extends along the length of the longitudinal suture. It is caused by the ascent of vapors, either excessive in amount or too hot or too cold. It's likely that at around the same time as Galen coined the term hemicrania, people in China were using acupuncture to treat migraine. Han Dynasty physician Hua Tuo is credited with successfully resolving the emperor's migraine attacks by treating an acupuncture point on the sole of his foot. Jumping ahead to the 12th century, past podcast subject Hildegard of Bingen is often credited with writing the medical text Causae et Curae. This text describes migraine as stemming from bad humors, especially melancholy or black bile, And it also explains that the pain occurs only in half the head because if it was experienced across the whole head at once, it would be simply unbearable. There's been some speculation that Hildegard herself had migraine attacks and even that these offer some explanation for her religious visions. Her illustrated work, Scivias, details these visions. In 1913, scientist and historian Charles Singer wrote a paper about Hildegard in which he interpreted some of the illustrations as depicting scintillating scotoma. Oliver Sacks revived this idea in his book, Migraine, which was first published in 1970. And while it's possible to see some similarities between these illustrations and descriptions or depictions of migraine aura, We don't actually know whether Hildegard was involved with making those illustrations and, if she was, what her intent was with those illustrations. Yeah, they. I mean, they also have similarities to lots of other medieval artwork that, you know, has repetition in the same way in the pictures. So we just just don't really know. 
at about the same time as Hildegard was living, Persian physicians were also writing about migraine. This included past podcast subject Ibn Sina, as well as Ibn al-Jazar. Persian medicine at this point had parallels to the Greek humoral medicine system, but Ibn Sina also described migraine as originating from membranes under the skull and from various parts of the brain, which then caused pain in the muscles. Ibn Sina described two types of migraine, hot and cold, with treatments meant to cool or warm depending. Bloodletting and enemas were part of the regimen as well. Ibn Sina recommended that patients take a bath when they felt a migraine coming on, induce sneezing with pistachio oil, and massage the vein on the side of the head that hurt with opium. Ibn al-Jazar's work on migraine was translated by Constantine the African, and from there it influenced the 13th century medical compendium on the properties of things. This was compiled by Franciscan monk Bartholomaeus Anglicus, and the treatments that it recommended for migraine included scarifying the shins to try to draw bad humors out of the head. Also, around the 12th and 13th centuries, Chinese physician Wan Su Liu also wrote a book of medical formulas, and one of them described the treatment of migraine using two specific Chinese herbs. We have mentioned the use of bleeding to treat migraine, and in the 15th century, the Guild Book of the Barber Surgeons of the City of York included a diagram of bleeding sites for treating various illnesses. A point for megrum was marked between the thumb and index finger on the right hand. This is actually close to the acupuncture point large intestine 4, which is one of the points commonly used for headaches, along with other pain and stress. Other sources recommended bloodletting using the vein in the middle of the forehead or on the temporal vein on whichever side the pain was happening on. There are a lot of recipe books and medical texts from the medieval and early modern period that include different treatments for migraine. They include herbs to be ingested, inhaled, held in the mouth, or worn as a poultice or a plaster. One ingredient that makes multiple appearances that's not a plant is earthworms. The idea being that if earthworms feed on rotten matter out in the world, then if you pound them into a poultice and wear that on your head, it might draw putrid elements out of your head. One person who documented such a recipe was a Mrs. Corlin, whose 1606 recipe book belonged to Althea Talbot, Countess of Arundel and Surrey. Mrs. Corlin included multiple recipes for migraine treatments, as did Jane Jackson, whose recipe book dates to 1642. These are on a whole spectrum from, like, really simple, here's a couple of herbs to try, to really involved setups that would require, like, a long period of time to create a medicine. Or just, you know, get some earthworms. Uh, We are going to move on to the early modern world, particularly in Europe, after we pause for a sponsor break. To quickly recap, in ancient Greece, Persia, China, and India, the practice of medicine usually involved the idea of balancing, whether what was being balanced was referred to as a humor, a dosha, or chi. And those concepts continue to be part of traditional Iranian medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, and Ayurveda. Obviously, these were not the only places in the ancient world where people developed systems of medicine or where people were experiencing migraine attacks. 
They're just the places where we have the most concrete information available in English at this point. And for the last part of this episode, we're going to be focusing mainly on Europe and how the treatment of migraine has evolved in Western medicine in the early modern and modern world. Physician Thomas Willis was the person who coined the term neurology. He did a lot of influential work related to brain anatomy. The circle of Willis, which is the area at the bottom of the brain where several arteries come together roughly as a circle, is named for him. In 1672, he published two chapters on headaches that included a classification of different headache types. He thought migraine was caused by increased arterial blood flow in the membranes surrounding the brain. By the early 1700s, more and more migraine drugs and other preparations were being sold pre-made, rather than people mostly making their own from herbs and other ingredients that they had bought or grown. And this is also when English speakers started to shift more from the word megram to migraine, although there were some doctors who argued that megram, as described in Britain, was a different but similar condition to migraine as described in France. In 1758, John Fordyce published De Hemicrania, which was based on his own migraine attacks. And in 1778, John Fothergill wrote about food as a cause of migraine. He wasn't quite onto the idea that specific foods could trigger an attack, though. It was more that butter, fatty meat, and black pepper were all part of a poor diet, which meant that popular foods, like meat pies, were particularly bad. Father Gill recommended a healthier diet combined with drinking lots of mineral water. Swiss physician Samuel Auguste André David Tissot researched migraine in the late 18th century, and his treatise on the nerves and nervous disorders included a clinical overview of migraine. This was based on previous writing and on his own research, and it included a lot of elements that still really hold up today. He described migraine as recurring, with pain often accompanied by vomiting, and vomiting sometimes signaling that the headache is coming to an end. He also described migraine aura and other visual disturbances, and that specific factors could trigger an attack. One thing from this that didn't really hold up was his idea that migraine had gastric causes. That was a commonly held view uh, around this time. Like, going all the way back to the first definition of of hemicrania was this idea of, like, vapors arising from the gut. So that was a a long-held idea. Vapors. Tissot's work on migraine was really influential for at least the next century. But even as medical science was making some more concrete progress on consistently describing the condition, migraine was starting to pick up a lot of negative connotations. In Britain, migraine became increasingly connected to stereotypes of French delicacy and excess. Caricatures and satirical publications depicted foppish, seemingly high-maintenance doctors who minced around with snuff and elaborate outfits. One character at the King's Theatre Masquerade in London in 1782 was Le Sieur François de Migraine, Docteur de Médecin. So, uh, naming a a probably very ineffectual doctor after it. Yeah, and that trend continued into the 19th century. In 1854, Patrick J. Murphy published Headache and Its Varieties in The Lancet. Although many ordinary people were using megram, hemicrania, and sick headache interchangeably, he described these as three different things. Megram was an anemic headache, 
common among, quote, mothers in the lower classes of life. Hemicrania was a neuralgic headache, which he described as hysterical in origin, and a sick headache was congestive. Again, common mostly in women. This was a continuation of earlier work that connected migraine to things like a lack of blood due to menstruation and mothers who breastfed their children for too long. In 1858, as migraine was becoming more strongly associated with supposedly worn-out, anxious women, Sir John Herschel gave a lecture titled Sensorial Vision. He talked about his own experience with what sounds like migraine aura, quote, a singular, shadowy appearance at the outside corner of the field of vision of the left eye. It gradually advanced into the field of view and then appeared to be a pattern in straight-lined, angular forms, very much in general aspect like the drawing of a fortification with salient and re-entering angles, bastions, and ravelins with some suspicion of faint lines of color between the dark lines. He said he'd told various people about this experience and that one woman he knew said this happened to her as well, and every time it did, a terrible headache followed. Meanwhile, doctors were still discussing different potential explanations and classifications for migraine. In 1858, John Addington Simmons argued that sick headache and hemicrania were two different things. And then in 1873, Edward Living published the 500-page On Megram, which again argued that people experienced migraine for different reasons— He concluded that in working-class men, it was from too much work being done in poor ventilation, but that in men of a, quote, somewhat higher social grade, it was essentially from too much thinking. But for women, regardless of class, he wrote that it was coming from their anxious nervousness and the various pressures associated with housekeeping and child-rearing. That same year, P.W. Latham published On Nervous or Sick Headache, Its Varieties and Treatment, two lectures delivered at Addenbrooke's Hospital, Cambridge. This included a visual depiction that Dr. Hubert Airy had drawn of scintillating scotoma in 1870. Side note, Airy and Sir John Herschel knew each other, and they had discussed their visual disturbances during Airy's visits. Then, in 1895, neurologist Sir William Gowers, author of Diseases of the Nervous System, gave a lecture at which he displayed a visual representation of a patient's migraine aura. Gowers' patient, a Mr. Beck, had created a whole collection of aura pictures that he had collected into a book. Things like Herschel's description and Aries and Beck's visual recreations of their own experiences launched just a ton of interest in this, quote, transiently defective vision. Soon, migraine with aura was being described as classic migraine, with migraine without aura described as common. Migraine with aura became viewed as the most authentic presentation of migraine even though migraine without aura was more common. And Hubert Airy's representation of his aura became the standard of what aura looked like. 
And even though women experienced migraine with aura, for the most part, they were not the ones going to these medical lectures or seeing artistic interpretations of migraine aura in medical journals or discussing all of that at medical society meetings. So there was a growing sense that men in particular had these visual disturbances, whether they happened with or without headache, because of their overstimulated brains, while women's migraine attacks were more likely to be ascribed to things like neurasthenia, nervous exhaustion, or having too many babies. Increasingly, migraine in men was viewed as a mark of genius, especially in intellectual men, whether it was connected to pain or not. But migraine in women was a mark of neurosis and martyrdom. This has obviously continued to influence people getting treated for migraine in the years that has followed all this. By the early 20th century, Multiple medical fields had become more firmly established as fields, including neurology, endocrinology, allergy and immunology, psychology, and ophthalmology. And many of them were starting to find potential connections between what they were studying in those fields and migraine. For example, George Bray reported that many of his migraine patients had positive skin tests for various food allergies in 1931. But the idea of a migraine personality was evolving as well. Physician John Graham describes this as, quote, a personality that seeks and creates stress and a physiology that handles it poorly. Another person to suggest a personality connection was Dr. Harold G. Wolfe of Cornell Medical Center, who had migraine himself. He referenced his own perfectionism and ambition and that of his upper-class friends and colleagues who also had migraine. Broadly speaking, apart from all of this sort of social baggage that had evolved, two general theories had emerged to explain migraine. It either had a vascular cause or a nervous system cause. The vascular theory gained a lot of support in the 1930s after physician Alfred Goltman described the case of a nurse who had experienced recurring severe headaches with vomiting. At one point, a neurosurgeon had done exploratory surgery through a burr hole. And that hole had healed over as a depression in her skull that was full of blood vessels. Goldman noticed that when she had a migraine attack, those vessels seemed to fill in this depression and swell almost like a tumor. Dr. Harold G. Wolfe worked on the vascular theory of migraine as well. His experiments suggested that migraine aura was connected to vasoconstriction, and when those vessels dilated again, migraine pain followed. This type of work led to the use of vasoconstrictors to treat migraine, which did help some people. Vasoconstrictors were one of several drugs used in the 20th century to treat migraine. And before this point, drugs to treat migraine included non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like aspirin and pyrazole, morphine, digitalis, quinine, and cannabis extracts, among other things. Ergotamine is derived from ergot fungus and was first introduced as a drug to treat migraine in 1925. Along with other effects, this acts as a vasoconstrictor, and for the next few decades, it really became the primary drug to treat migraine pain. In 1944, Brazilian researcher Aristides Liao described a theory of cortical-spreading depression, basically a complex phenomenon involving a wave of excited and then suppressed brain activity. 
A couple of years before, psychologist Carl Spencer Lashley had proposed a similar wave of activity across the visual cortex when describing his own aura. It's possible that this is connected to migraine with aura, although this is not well understood. In the 1950s, researchers discovered a link between serotonin and migraine, and they started working on drugs to target specific serotonin receptors. And the result was a whole new class of drugs, triptans, with multiple different triptans on the market by the late 1990s. For the most part, triptans started replacing ergot derivatives as the primary treatment for migraine. The term migraineur made its first appearance in writing in 1970. That was in Oliver Sacks' book on migraine that we referenced a little bit ago. Today, some people describe themselves as migraineurs, but for others, it's a term to avoid for a number of reasons, including its negative connotations and the idea that it makes migraine into a person's entire identity. In the 1980s, researchers measured blood flow through the brain and found that in migraine without aura, there's no significant difference in the blood flow during a migraine attack. But in migraine with aura, blood flow is reduced at a rate of about two millimeters a minute. And this roughly lines up with the rate of cortical spreading depression that had been described, although again, this connection is not well understood. By the 1990s, functional MRI studies were suggesting that migraine was not a purely vascular phenomenon, and it's been increasingly framed as a biochemical process. And a wide range of drugs have been used to treat it, often because people who were taking a drug for some other reason reported that it also helped with their migraine attacks. Among other things, this has included people taking beta blockers for heart issues, various antidepressants, and medicines to treat epilepsy. The FDA approved Botox as a migraine treatment in 2020. The FDA also approved a transcranial magnetic stimulator for migraine treatment in 2013, the first device to be approved for that purpose. Until very, very recently, the drugs used to treat migraine were generally used to reduce and shorten migraine attacks after the attacks had started, And in the U.S., the FDA started approving the first drugs developed specifically to prevent migraine attacks in 2018. So just three years ago. These are known as calcitonin gene-related peptide or CGRP monoclonal antibodies. CGRP is related to various pain processes in the body, and it also acts as a vasodilator, and these drugs block that action. To wrap it up, there are just so, so, so many historical figures who are known to have had recurring headaches, many of which are described as migraine today. Just as examples, Anne Countess of Conway, Charles Darwin, Thomas Jefferson, Virginia Woolf, and Pablo Picasso. Some people interpret the entirety of Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland as a literary exploration of migraine, as well as Emily Dickinson's I Felt a Funeral in My Brain. Sometimes this can seem a little bit speculative. As we've talked about on the show before, diagnosing people from the past can be tricky when they are not here to be examined. But... We will end on a quote from Rudyard Kipling, which was written in a letter to uh, Miss Margaret Byrne Jones in 1886. And this is pretty specific and detailed. He wrote, quote, Do you know what hemicrania means? A half headache. I've been having it for a few days, and it's a lovely thing. 
one half of my head in a mathematical line from the top of my skull to the cleft of my jaw throbs and hammers and sizzles and bangs and swears while the other half, calm and collected, takes notes of the agonies next door. My disgusting doctor says it's overwork again, and I'm equally certain that it arose from my suddenly and violently discarding tobacco for three days. Anyhow, it hurts awfully. Feels like petrifaction in sections and makes one right abject drivel. Hi, this is debilitating and horrible. <laughs> yeah, it's... um. <laughs> One of the World Health Organization statistics that I didn't cite was that in terms of years lived with a disability, uh, migraine is is like the sixth most disabling condition. Everybody I know who has experienced migraines, which is like some people, like on a spectrum be- between folks that have had like a cluster of several migraines that then sort of went away to folks that have been dealing with recurring migraine attacks throughout their whole entire life has generally been something that has just profoundly affected their lives uh, through all of that time. Uh, So if you want to know more about the medical history of migraine, particularly in the West, Migraine, a History by Catherine Foxhall from Johns Hopkins University Press uh, was one of the sources for this episode. It's from an academic press, but it's pretty widely available. Um, There are open access copies of it that you can get without... um, having to to purchase one or, or get it from a library if that's not an option for you. So I read that as one of the sources for this, and it is, uh, I found, pretty accessible in terms of more academic writing um, with lots and lots of details and specifics that we didn't really get into as much here. Do you have some uh, listener mail to get into? Okay, I do have listener mail. It is from Kelsey, who writes Pest Control in New Zealand, and Kelsey writes Kiora Korua. Hey, Holly and Tracy. I've been an avid listener of your podcast for years, and I really enjoy it, so thank you very much for that. I just listened to the Kudzu Vine episode, and it brought to mind all the predator and pest control that has gone on in New Zealand. Because New Zealand was isolated from larger land masses for such a long time after the breakup of Gondwana, our flora and fauna are really unique. Our only native land mammals are bats, and most of our birds prefer to wander about on the ground because we used to have the host eagle, which was a major predator before it went extinct. When Maori arrived in about 1200 AD, we brought rats and dogs that devastated the bird population, and we also burned lots of forest. But what really set our native populations back was when the Pakeha Europeans showed up with worse rats, pigs, cats, and other animals. Some plants were introduced by farmers that had worked really well in Britain, such as gorse and broom, but quickly became pests in New Zealand's more temperate climate. Acclimatization societies introduced brown trout to our rivers, which wiped out some of our fish species. They also called kea, which are the only alpine parrot in the world because kea would attack sheep by eating the liver while the sheep was still alive and running around. Other animals, such as Australian possums, were introduced for fur trade, but have become omnivorous in New Zealand and are real pests. Rabbits were introduced for sport and then became pests, so ferrets and stoats were introduced to control the rabbits, but they found the flightless birds a bit easier to catch and eat, such as our kiwi species. So many mistakes by humans have led to New Zealand having 
one of the highest rates of endangered bird species in the world. Successive governments have attempted to control pests in different ways, but there is a national strategy of predator-free New Zealand by 2050. This can involve extensive trapping and monitoring, but also the widespread use and aerial dropping of 1080 poison, which is controversial, albeit necessary. We are in a unique situation where conservation efforts require systematic massacres of animals, which can be hard for foreigners to understand. Listening to your podcast is an absolute treat, and I love the diversity of subjects you cover. Thanks heaps for everything you do, Kelsey. Thanks so much for sending this in, Kelsey. Um, I hope I did okay with the Maori pronunciations. I tried to practice them ahead of time. Um, But the discussion, especially at the end, about the attempts to control these pests reminded me of, uh, I think it was our podcast on endlings, where we were talking about the last of various species I don't remember how much detail we got into it in the episode, but I had gone down a huge rabbit hole of reading about goat control projects in the Galapagos Islands that similarly required just like culling of all the goats that had uh, been left on the islands and had just taken over and become really damaging to the ecosystem. So thank you again. Uh, Kelsey, for sending that in. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcasts at iheartradio.com. And we are also all over social media at Mist in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and anywhere else you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.